You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And I get to say that because right now as we're recording this, I have sun. It's supposed to rain this afternoon, but it'll be sunny tomorrow. Breaking the clouds out there. We're recording this on January 10, 2024 to broadcast on January 11, 2024. It's 45 degrees outside and the weather service is saying showers likely 70% chance of showers. Less than a 10th of an inch is likely today. Tonight, a chance of showers as well. 32 degrees as it clears up uh, Wednesday night. Thursday, the day of the show will become sunny and 51 degrees. Sunny and a little brisk, you might say. That's actually only a little below average for this time of year. Mid-50s is fairly typical high temperature for us in the month of January here. Thursday night, areas of frost and then uh, patchy fog. We're going to be about 32 degrees early Friday morning. Then fog will develop patchy fog and a slight chance of showers during the day on Friday with a high also 51 degrees. Because of the cloud cover and the fog, we're going to have a 41 degree low temperature Friday night with a chance of showers and then showers. I like the way they say that chance of showers, then showers. (laughs) Saturday, showers, 80% chance, also 51 degrees. Saturday night, chance of showers, 41 degrees. These are all light amounts. We're probably going to get, oh, maybe a tenth of an inch out of each of these possibly more localized downpours, but this is a sort of a weak storm passing over us. Sunday, partly sunny, warming up to 56 degrees. And Sunday night, partly cloudy, dropping down to 37. Martin Luther King Day on Monday is Apache Frost, otherwise partly sunny with a high near 54. Monday night, partly cloudy, low around 37. That's really typical right there. That that right there is just about our average early January temperature range. 54 high, 37 low Monday night. And warming up a little bit, partly sunny on Tuesday with a high near 55. Let me take a quick look at the forecast discussion. Is, are all these things that you're talking about, is it a whole bunch of little storms or is it one great big thing stalling and going and stalling? And It's a, it's a, a couple different storms passing over us, mostly going to the north, actually. So there's going to be more rainfall in the northern part of the state and along the mountains on both sides of the valley. A stronger, colder storm, there's telling us today, will move in bringing heavy mountain snow, minor snow accumulations in the upper foothills, heavy snow in the Sierra from mid-morning through the afternoon today, Wednesday, one to two inches per hour. So if you're heading up that way, definitely check for road closures and chains and all that kind of stuff. And that'll linger this evening, then taper off Thursday morning. By the time the show broadcast, we'll have clearing skies and cold air settling back in the valley. Now, there's a Potential, they say here, for a hard freeze on Thursday morning, which, of course, would be before the show broadcast. The probabilities have come down to around 20 to 45 percent in the Sacramento Valley. Again, as with all of these frosts and the temperatures we're looking at, I am unconcerned about all of these. Uh, we get questions anytime the weather service calls for frost or even you know, make some comment about a freeze. None of this is anything below 31, 32 degrees. So as we've said before, these are not a concern. You don't need to rush out and cover anything. You don't need to turn on lights. 
I get a little frustrated because garden writers and people who do blogs and post on Facebook and stuff just promptly recycle all their, you have to cover this, you should put lights on this. This isn't that kind of cold, okay? These are normal normal frost events for USDA Zone 9. So don't be concerned about them unless you're growing something you probably already know you shouldn't be growing. But the extended forecast has drier weather expected Sunday into Tuesday. A ridge is building inland. Some morning valley fog will be possible. And as you all know, if you live here, that can be quite dense and can come on quite suddenly. So drive carefully. Uh, high temperatures are going to be near normal and the model solutions, as they like to say, diverge Tuesday, leading to some forecast uncertainty. One model brings another round of precipitation into the area Tuesday and Tuesday night, while the other one maintains the ridging through midweek. Take your pick. We'll find out in a few days. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, That's Life, Jazz After Dark, or any of the other 30 or so programs that you hear on KDRT, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. We love it when you do that during our fund drives, but you can do it anytime. You can do it any time of year. You can go over there and give us money or give us your car if you prefer to do that. I did that. Yeah. Last year we got rid of the car and, you know, it wasn't that hard. And you guys got, we got, KDRT got a whole bunch of money. Yeah, there we go. So if you've got an old clunker sitting around, just donate it. Don't pull it over there and leave it in front of the building. (laughs) (laughs) They come and they take it. They, you know, they do all the paperwork. They take care of everything. There's a a company that does this for nonprofits. I was amazed. I'd I'd love to interview the people in that company, but they're too. (laughs) taking care of cars there you go so uh, let's see we got some updates on a couple of the contests we told you about well i don't know anything about the butterfly contest but i got a notice that the bumblebee contest has been won (laughs) the fairfield resident wins the first bumblebee of the year contest that's the first bumblebee not not that this is the first contest um fans of bees are abuzz as nancy hansen from fairfield won the fourth annual ribbenthorpe memorial first bumblebee of the year contest by seeing the first bee of the year you take a picture for proof you don't take the bumblebee in yeah (laughs) you take the picture and submit it to bohart museum which is uh the sponsor of the program and uh, yeah, she said, took a video on her madrone tree in her oh. backyard. Well, I'm guessing it's probably not actually a madrone tree because we've reached the point in the nursery industry where Arbutus marina, which has become an incredibly popular relative of madrone that grows very easily in people's landscapes, unlike actual madrone, is simply being called madrone tree by people. This Madro- says it's Arbutus menziesiae. I'd be very surprised if it is, but that's fine because that one is very, very tough to grow. So I just wanted to make this little editorial comment about that. Arbutus menzisi is our native madrone. Madrone, as the old saying goes, only grows where madrone grows, which sounds like a tautology. But in point of fact, what it's saying is that when you try to grow madrone out of its native range and soil type and existing environmental habitat, um, it almost always fails. It almost always dies of crown rot or some other problem. Whereas there's a tree that looks a lot like Arbutus menziesii, but is really easy to grow called Arbutus marina. It's a hybrid within the same genus, but different species. It's become very popular. And what I really like about marina, madrone, if you want to call it that, 
is it blooms all the time. I have pictures of flowers on that plant every month of the year, heavily blooming in the winter, but even midsummer. And yes, bumblebees absolutely love it. If she actually has a madrone, well, really cool. That would be amazing. And they would definitely like that as well. So the bumblebee contest is over, but Art Shapiro's Beer for Butterfly contest is apparently still open, at least as of today's date, January 10th. So if you're the person who finds the first of the year cabbage white butterfly in the three county area of Yolo, Sacramento and Solano counties, you win a beer or it's equivalent. And there's all kinds of contest rules, but it's actually pretty simple. Just head on over to bohart.ucdavis.edu and bohart is spelled B-O-H-A-R-T. And right there on the homepage, you will find the rules for the Beer for a Butterfly contest and a bunch of other events. And they would like you to know now, and we'll get more information about this, about the Biodiversity Museum Day, which is campus-wide, February 10. They need your help. They also would love you to be there. So go ahead and check that out. If you're thinking of coming up to UC Davis for any reason, you've got, let's say, a kid who might want to go to school here or something. February 10th, Biodiversity Museum Day featuring all the museums on campus. And UC Davis has an amazing number of resources in that regard. Free for all ages, free parking, 2024 events at the Bohart Museum of Entomology, bohart.ucdavis.edu. Last week, we mentioned Patricia Carpenter's Garden Ramble. She's a native plant ambassador for the California Native Plant Society, hosts open houses out at her property. What we didn't have was a link to the information. So Lois, I believe we found one. We found a link to the information. I have it in front of me. Oh, it's very thorough. It's very beautiful. And there's a place where you can register for the event. So now you don't have to worry about the fact that we couldn't tell you where to go on the radio. We can tell you now. And here's how to get to this page. Go to California, the California Native Plant Society website, which is cnps.org. And then you have your choice. If you like typing, you could just keep typing slash event. That'll take you right there. If you go to the front page, the home page is lots of stuff. And under get involved, there is a link to events near you. Now, Don said, how do they know where I am? <laughs> they always know where they know how you're connecting. So don't, yes, don't that's worry. true. Yes. Anyway, if you go to that events list, scroll all the way down to Sunday, the 28th of January, and there you will find the link to that page. Yep, site for site for registering, a map for how to get there. It's out west of town. It's actually easy to find. It's right west of town on what we call Russell Boulevard. And um, it's any time between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m., rain or shine. Nothing wrong with rain in a native plant garden. It'll actually be very pretty if it happens to be raining. There's a mobile plant nursery locally. The Miradai is the name of this mobile plant nursery that is there at most of her events. They sell native plants there. They bring this amazing truck out that opens out as a little mobile nursery and they're native plant specialists with a really good quality. So they'll be there to sell some native plants as well. Information is at cnps.org on the event button. So that's, that's it for our announcements. And boy, there are so many things going on. You wouldn't think in January, there would be so many activities 
but there are. Well, there are. And there's one that I want to mention if you're, uh, it's not a specific one, but this is the time that many people prune fruit trees, deciduous fruit trees. And so a bunch of, well, nurseries, for example, in Sacramento will host pruning clinics. Uh, the master gardeners host pruning clinics. And they're a really good idea. If you've got a new, I've never had a space to do this at my own garden center. I've never done them. We just have information. You can go to redwoodbarn.com and find lots of information there about fruit trees, obviously. But this is the, a great time to look for events hosted by the master gardeners in your county and Yolo County master gardeners do such events. Nurseries that have bigger space like uh, Green Acres in Sacramento will have pruning uh, seminars. And if you've never done it before, it really is a good plan to go to one of these. I can describe to you how to prune or train a fruit tree, but boy, it's sure a lot easier when you just watch someone doing it. Uh, so if those are something you haven't been to before, I, I highly recommend seeking them out in your area. And of course, as we've made clear on this show, there's a lot of different ways to prune and train things. You'll go there, you'll get their perspective. If that doesn't comport with everything you learn from a gardening expert, that's okay. Learn the principles, learn the, learn the principles and the goals, learn what your goal is in pruning a fruit tree. And uh, then you can adjust just like when you read a recipe in a cookbook. Do you follow the recipe exactly? Are you that kind of a person? My mother was that kind of a person. When she was cooking, the recipe was there on a little thing she had it mounted on and she followed it exactly. Personally, I've never ever done that. I am the I'm reading. I do it the first time right. to see what it's like. And then if I like it, I'll probably modify it. <laughs> yeah, well, and this is the point. You 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 learn the principle. You, yeah, learn the science of it, learn the principles. Your goal in pruning fruit trees very quickly, in my opinion, is to reduce the fruit load. And when I say that to people, they're always a little, well, I want as many peaches as possible. You don't want 700 peaches. You yeah, want. You also don't want your tree to break because you got too many peaches on it. Right. So you want to learn, you know, that, that home pruning and training has different goals than commercial pruning and training. That's just one example right there. Uh, opening up the structure of the tree, getting it so you can pick the fruit from the ground. I mean, in the commercial orchards, they don't care about that. They're up on 18 foot ladders picking fruit because they want a thousand peaches off of each tree or more. Uh, you may only want a hundred and you don't want to get up on a ladder. So your goals are different than those of others. The only other thing I would say, since I've had this conversation with people now a couple times in the last few days, there's two types of fruit trees we don't prune in the winter, apricots and cherries. In both cases, if you prune them in the rainy season, you're opening them up to disease infection. And this is fairly new advice. So it's not everywhere, not every pruning seminar, not every extension publication is going to reflect this. But apricots get Utypa disease infecting through open pruning cuts when it's raining. Cherries get Botryosphyria or bot rot as they call it, infecting through open pruning cuts if it rains right after you prune. So if you have to prune in the winter, you wanna wait for at least three to four days of dry weather ahead. And even better in the case of both of those, here in Northern California, at least, don't prune them in the winter. If you can avoid it, prune them in the late summer. And summer pruning is so much easier and so much more pleasant to do. Nothing like being out there in slippery 45 degree weather trying to prune a fruit tree on a ladder. Um, how about if you're out there in, on a cooler spell in August pruning that fruit tree and just getting up and heading it back? That's really all you're doing. So look into summer pruning. Not every seminar you go to is gonna cover that topic, but if you want information on it, Dave Wilson Nursery has great videos on the topic. UC Cooperative Extension, Master Gardeners have information on it. It's simple. It's something that you can, the more summer pruning you do, the less winter pruning you'll have to do. And the way I've described it to someone just yesterday who was aghast that he wasn't supposed to prune his apricots now, 
you can get to the point where you're doing most of your work in the summer, size control, anybody can do that. Just heading it back, just taking off a bunch of the stuff that just grew, but isn't going to grow anymore that season. You're waiting till the major period of growth has passed. If you prune them back in August, they won't re-sprout. If you prune them back in June, they will re-sprout. So you wait till they won't re-sprout, what pomologists call the quiescent stage. It's sort of a dormancy. You head them back, you do that size control, you'll find there's a lot less work that you have to do in the wintertime. And the more people do summer pruning, the easier they find it to be. And it's primary si primarily size control pruning and fruit reduction. So the question I got from someone who'd studied plant physiology is, aren't you stunting the plant by taking off all those leaves in the summertime? And I go, well, it's not the whole point, but it's one of them. Yes. I mean, it, yes, you are. You're stunting the plant. You're removing from the plant physiology standpoint, you're removing sources, leaves. And so you're stunting the plant. Yes, you are intentionally is sort of dwarfing the plant. And that's one of your goals as a home gardener. This goes back 20, 25 years when we've, we started to try to tell people, you're not a farmer. You want a hundred peaches on that variety. And then a week later, a hundred peaches on the next variety. The production capability of a Santa Rosa plum or a Alberta peach grown to full capacity is over a thousand fruit. Are you feeding the whole neighborhood and are you all coming over and having a canning party or are you just looking to get, you know, 50 to 100 really good fruit off that tree? Good luck getting your Santa Rosa plum down to 50 to 100 fruit. <laughs> and then... Well but the Santa Rosa plum does have one thing that the peaches don't. And that is you can call the harvesters that will come out when it's time and they will come out and they will harvest your fruit. So you pick up what you want and then they, they come and they distribute it to people who need food. So that I can do that. And I do do that with my plum, but I can't do that with a peach. Yeah, they, they go, yeah, they don't hold that well. I don't know if the food bank could actually process peaches in that particular manner. There's probably a lot of people that would take your surplus peaches, but you know, if you've ever grown them, you know that it's about a week that so you got to deal with all that stuff. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. I do love a picture that Ed Livo, who worked for many years for Dave Wilson, really popularized backyard uh, orchard techniques, including summer pruning. And he would show a picture of a Santa Rosa plum that he was keeping at three feet by hard pruning three feet yeah a santa rosa plum bush three feet tall and a not a not a dwarfing rootstock he was one of the ones who really pressed the point don't worry about rootstock that's not the point you prune them prune them prune them and he showed it in full bloom and it was covered with blooms he had it primarily as a pollinizer i mean that's one of the main reasons for planting santa rosa is that it enables you to grow all these other plum and pluot types and it, it helps to pollinize them he said that little plum that he showed a picture of produced a hundred plums a hundred plums and he goes all right audience how many santa rosa plums did you eat last year in that one week that they were ripening was it a hundred well there you go you have a three-foot bush that gives you everything you need i don't do that with my santa rosa but i do prune print it pretty hard because otherwise the ground is just littered with plums you can't use that was a bit of a digression more point being there are printing seminars out there check them out and one of the advantages of summer pruning is if you get all your pruning done in the summer, then in the winter in December and January, when it's cold and wet and rainy, you can take off and go to Hawaii. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> the reason for doing things in the winter is that you can see the structure of the tree and you can take out crossing branches and strongly upright shoots and work on the, the structural integrity of the tree. That does require some knowledge and perhaps a little horticultural skill. The summer pruning 
you know, there were many times that the, the, my son and his friends wanted to earn some money. I just said, all right, go ahead and top them. They freaked out. I said, no, you just, just shorten them up. Just pretend you're pruning these apples over here like a hedge and just clean up, pile your stuff over there. I will look at them in January and see if I need to do anything about it. But in general, we found that there was very little follow-up needed. They just pruned them down like a hedge and I thinned them out in the winter. Anyway, there are seminars out there. That was a long digression as usual. We got lots of topics today, Lois. Right. Uh, there's one that uh, is Tanya. I assume it's T-O-N-G-A that is pronounced Tanya. Uh, and she refers in here to smut, which means that we know that she's in the Sacramento area because smut is the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. Yeah. All right. Um, here we go. Hello, Don and Lois. We desperately need your help and expertise. We came home the other day to find that the neighbors behind us completely removed the privet trees that were providing privacy and sunscreen for our backyard, Ooh. possibly by smud to keep out of the power lines above them. We only can see now, not only can we see the back neighbor's entire yard, we can see the house yard beyond their home yeah. also. So uh, we would, this will also cause our backyard to have a lot more late afternoon sun in the summertime. I wanted to plant Hardenbergia, Happy Wanderer, but we did that already in one section. And while it looked beautiful, it completely tore up the wooden lattice. So my husband says no way to that. <laughs> I thought that if we staggered them between our backyard and our neighbor's backyard, they might do better, but they do tear apart the wooden lattice. We also thought of planting citrus trees, but that's going to take a while, and I'm not sure we have the room on our side. Photos of the exposed area, as well as the happy wanderer damage, are attached. Can you recommend anything to cover the lattice to give us back our privacy, or something I can recommend to the neighbor to plant? I'm sure they want their privacy back, too. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I, I have to, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not a fan of privets, so it's okay with me that privets were taken out. They have a lot of drawbacks. They're highly allergenic. They reseed like crazy. Their roots are aggressive. So consider this, let's, let's just put a positive spin on this briefly. Um, you have an opportunity here to replace an ugly hedge with a nicer hedge, but go ahead and describe this fence because it's a bit of an issue here. Okay, so the fence is a bricks up to what would you guess that is Don? about, about five? five feet yeah block yeah. concrete block wall up to about five feet and then on top of it there is a lattice now for those of you listeners who don't know what a lattice is lattice is a very thin strip of wood it's usually about uh, one and a half two inches maybe two and a half inches wide and maybe and definitely less than an inch thick maybe half an inch something like that maximum yeah less than that actually yeah a third of an inch something anyway it's very thin and they come in long strips so if you want to build a lattice which is what these folks are have done you would lay down the strips alternating a lattice, a gap, a lattice, a gap, a lattice, a gap, all the way down, and then going across-wise, you know, 90 degrees across from that, you would go the other direction, a lattice, a gap, a lattice, a gap. So what you've got laying down there is wood with holes in it. But if you try to attach the top lath to the underneath lath, um, what you're going to be doing is using a staple that's long enough to go through the top one, but not so long that will go poking out the backside of the bottom one. 
And that means that where you've stapled it, there's only about, you know, an eighth of an inch or so holding those two things together. Most of the times when these wooden laths are created, the wooden lattices are created, the lath is not stapled at every crossing point. It's only stapled at the edges. So if this is a two foot wide, it looks like. Two by eight. Yeah. Foot wide and eight foot long. And at the outside edges, there's a frame. And so the lattice is attached to the frame by staples. And that's it. It's very, very light and it's very easily pulled apart. Yes, these are flimsy. And what what that boils down to all that discussion of the staples is it's not held together very well. I have sold this stuff. These are fence extensions you can buy pre-made. They're two by eight and they're already framed and you just attach them somehow to the top of your fence. And most places that's legal. You can do that just a a couple feet. You should check with your local housing office, your local building department as to what you're allowed to do. It provides some privacy, but you can see through it, but they're flimsy. I don't like to sell these, any of these, because they are literally held together with quarter inch or three-eighths inch staples, and that's it. And they pull apart at the slightest provocation. Yes, a happy wanderer, Hardenbergia, would tear that apart. I'm going to digress slightly and talk about that plant. Hardenbergia, happy wanderer, is amazing purple flower in the middle of the winter. And I can tell you something, people love purple. <laughs> purple flowers. Vigorous, vigorous. Well, mainly the flowers are at a time of year that not much else is blooming. Happy wanderer of the genus of the, of the species and cultivars in that genus is the most cold hardy that we've encountered. So it grows in the valley and only about one year out of every seven or eight do we actually get frost injury to the point of damaging the blooms. That does happen occasionally. It's very vigorous. I'll tell you something else, though, from my own experience, that of my customers, now that we've been growing and selling this plant for about 20 years, if it lasts more than five years, you've done well. It grows very rapidly, makes this great big tangle of foliage. So yes, it provides privacy very quickly. And then they just die out. And that's been our experience. And that's been what people are telling us. So it's definitely a temporary screen. And well, it's not a big woody vine. You're not planting a wisteria or something like that. It still gets stems that are a quarter inch in diameter, which will easily push through those pieces of lattice and push apart those staples that Lois was talking about. It'll tear apart the lattice without any question. So if you really need a quick screen, it's a wonderful plant for that. But I'm beginning to want people to understand it's not a long-term solution. And no, I agree. In this case, I agree with your husband. I would not put it on that lattice because you'll have the same problem you had before. And then you'll have to take it out after a few years so it's even worse and one of the things to think about is these wooden lattices they they fade to gray because Mm -hmm. that's what wood does they look just fine they blend in and all that other stuff they do make lattice that is plastic it is not a bunch of strips stuck together Mm -hmm. it is plastic in the shape of a panel with those square holes in it that would not pull apart no matter what you planted on it. Um, but typically they're white. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Don. Have you seen any colored ones? No, that I'm are sure that, no, I haven't, but I'm sure there could be out there. That would be one possibility. Although to me, I'm, I'm just personally think those don't look that great. They would hold, yeah, they, they would hold a lightweight vine. But let me tell you, as we've said before, vines have been some of the worst garden mistakes I've made on my own property. I could rattle off the vines I've planted that I liked at the time, which I then spent many hours pulling out. White potato vine, a good example. I spent an entire weekend removing it from my property earlier this season because it had gone away and climbed up on things nearby and rooted all over the place. 
Uh, so I want people to be cautious about using any vine without being aware of its potential. Um, in terms of a vine to cover that, I would think your safest bet would be some annuals this summer to give you quick cover. And I'm going to say morning glory, but I'm going to tell you that that one will reseed very happily. It's one of my favorite plants, but I don't want people to plant it without being forewarned. However, I did a lovely screen in my vegetable garden this summer of Scarlet Runner bean. Uh, Lois and I have talked about that one many times. And my planning of it, it had been a long time since I'd grown it. And I had a whole patch of, of wire trellis that I wasn't planting anything else on. So I just stuck a couple in, about two plants here and two plants there, about eight feet apart. And they went 16 feet down the screen by August. It was a solid cover, bright red flowers all summer long. And the hummingbirds went absolutely nuts for them. the hummingbirds and the big carpenter bees absolutely love the flowers of scarlet runner bean. Yes, it's an edible bean. It's not the best bean you've ever eaten, but you can eat them green if you pick them tender and small. You can use the beans in soup if you let them more or less dry on the plant, but it's mainly grown as an ornamental. And that would be a way to get a quick screening that you and your neighbors perhaps could do on either side of the fence well, you're waiting for something to grow up and provide some privacy. There's lots and lots of hedge plants. First of all, I want to say this is a very orderly and attractive backyard. You guys are really impressed with your garden. It looks great. You've got beautiful garden beds and you've got things over the bed so you can protect them from, I'm guessing, white crown sparrows and that sort of thing. I mean, you got all kinds of things going on there. It would be nice. Uh, I think that you'll enjoy the extra sunshine. It'll make the vegetable garden do better. But to get some privacy in the long run, I would strategically plant some relatively upright evergreen shrubs or small trees in a place where you can manage their height easily and where you can manage their width easily. So essentially hedge, although you don't have, when I say hedge, it makes me nervous because I think people think, oh, I have to clip that all the time. No, a hedge in the sense of evergreens that are between the properties that you've carefully pruned so that they give that privacy, maybe tops them so they don't cast too much shade on your garden uh, and any of a number of things that would be essentially like those privets, but much better plants. And it doesn't have to be the same thing all the way down. That's the other point I would I make. Times I lost one. That's a very good example. Zylosma is a good one. Many people would use Photinia. I have some issues with Photinia because of the dieback problems, but it, one here and one there. I really think that we should get away from one long row of one thing to the greatest extent we can, because almost every one thing we've come up with over the years, some problem has shown up on it. I've been talking about Toyon for the last couple of months, but Toyon can get fire blight. If you have one, big deal, that's fine. If you have a couple of Photinias, that flush of growth in the spring is great, but it also can get fire blight. So you don't, you know, you don't want your whole hedge to be that. But Xylosma is unrelated and doesn't get fire blight. I've had many customers use bamboo for quick screening where they do it in a container. Uh, they're running types in livestock troughs, for example, with good depth to them. And they bring a water line in from their nearby lawn or their nearby vegetable garden. And, you know, a five gallon bamboo is already oftentimes six or seven feet tall. Add that to the height of a two foot livestock trough or a three foot livestock trough. You have screening instantly. I've had many cases where people needed immediate screening. And so they were willing to spend the money on a bigger plant, two 15 gallon bamboo planted into three foot deep, two foot wide, six foot long livestock troughs provided instant screening. Yes, you could see through it. I mean, it wasn't that kind of privacy, but it gave the effect of privacy. And actually bamboo rustles a little in the wind and gives some, some ambience of its own in that regard. And again, you put it in a trough, so there's no risk of it running all over your yard. It just needs plenty of water. That's the one thing. So it should be watered with your garden or your lawn, not your lower water woody plants. But that is an option. And you can do the non-running types of bamboo, even in the ground, if you have room for them. They're big clumps, big shrubs. And looking at this yard, I don't 
don't think you have space for that. But for those of you listening that are looking for bamboo for screening, we just consulted on a project where the neighbor had built a giant two-story thing right next to an existing house. I mean, right there, and you could not miss it. And it was the second story, and it's architecturally dramatic, shall we say, not the kind of thing I'd want to look at every morning. So in that particular case, they went and they bought Weaver's bamboo, Bambusa textilis. They had six foot depth in the yard, which is what a big clump of Weaver's bamboo will take up over 10 to 15 years, but it gets 25 feet tall. And it's a solid wall of combs and foliage. So you will get considerable privacy. I used that particular one, Bambusa textilis, Weaver's bamboo, to screen off the view of my son's shop, which is a 30 foot tall metal building. I put in a long row of five gallon textilis 18 months ago, and they're already 15 feet tall. And when they leaf out this spring, basically that view will be not completely screened, but it'll be much less obvious. And by the third year, you won't even be able to see the building. However, again, each plant needs about five to six foot diameter of ground space. So that's probably for other listeners because I don't see that much room here. Here I see room for podocarpus, photinia, xylosma, toyon, um, a bunch of others, bottle brush. I mean, I just went through this with another customer, Arbutus marina, if you want something that's gonna get even bigger, although that'll get even bigger than the privets were. Arbutus unito, if you don't mind the litter from the berries. Italian buckthorn, Ramnus alternus, which is related to our ceanothus, but easier to grow. Ceanothus would be a quick screen in the case of Ray Hartman, not real long lived here in the valley, but beautiful flowers for the, let's say, four to five years that it grows for you. And it could be something that grows up rapidly while some of those other things are taking their time to get up there. Comment about citrus. Well, yes, you could do citrus there. I've had customers use citrus as a hedge. On the most commonly available root stocks, they will typically grow two to three feet a year. And well, you can spend money on a 15 gallon, you're typically only going to get a plant four to five feet tall from the 15 gallon, five gallons going to be three to four feet tall. So do plant citrus and enjoy them. And some of them are very ornamental, but be aware, yes, as commented that they'll be pretty slow to give that privacy. So Everything we've talked about planted six to eight feet apart, some nice mix of these things. Maybe your neighbors put some of those things on, on their side. It's really great when neighbors can work together on this kind of screening. And so they probably aren't any happier about it than you are. I'm probably happy to be rid of their privates, but would like some privacy back. So maybe we can work on this list together and they can plant some of the things on their side. And you can plant some on your side and make use of that lattice only with quick screening annual vines would be the best way to go in my opinion. So I want to make a couple comments on the pictures here. There is moss on these bricks. Uh, I think this is the north side yep. of a thing. Citrus is going to want more sunshine. So the citrus should be planted on your neighbor's side, which is the <laughs> side that will reflect the sun. And so when you're thinking about planting things, think about the, um, the area is it sunny? Is it shady? What is the plant like? And and Don, you went through so fast mm -hmm. on what don't you have something written up on the website that you can point people to? Yes, yes I do. All of the things I just mentioned, redwoodbarn.com. Just there's a little Google search box you can find there up in the corner that just searches that website. Just type in 
hedges and it's got a whole bunch of things on it. There's bottle brush in there. I just went through this with a customer who had a very similar situation, interestingly. He was very intrigued by bottle brush. Okay, there's a new one, Slim, which is a very upright growing bottle brush, uh, which and has those same beautiful flowers that all the bottle brushes have. He and I were talking about pineapple guava, which fruits, if you happen to want the fruit, you kind of look for the cultivars that are grown for that. But even the ones that are grown from seed have edible flowers. The flowers, by the way, are very tasty. And it will set fruit. And that can be good or bad, depending on how much you get. Uh, but pineapple guava is a it's similar in size, form, habit to the xylosma. As Lois mentions, this looks like it's the north side and probably is. So if you plant something that gets too tall, you're going to be losing some of your winter sun, just like the privets were probably casting a shadow pattern. So be cautious about planting anything that's going to get more than, let's say, 10 to 12 feet, or else you may shade out part of your garden, at least for the winter vegetables. If that doesn't bother you, fine. But uh, also maybe plant things that you know you can prune and everything we've talked about so far, you could prune. I mean, bay laurel is something that's a gentleman and I were talking about. Now, that can be 40 feet tall if you do nothing, but most commonly you see bay trees in the valley kept as large 10 to 12 foot evergreen hedges. They look basically a lot like the privet without the drawbacks. So uh, there's a lot of evergreen shrubs that would work for this. Podocarpus gracilia or Podocarpus henkeli. I mean, there, there's many, many possibilities. Many of them are reasonably fast growing. If you need a really quick screen, a big container of bamboo will do it. And uh, if you need, and then you can be patient while you wait for the citrus to grow up that your neighbor plants on their side of the fence or that you plant where you both could enjoy the fruit. Some citrus, by the way, are highly ornamental. Uh, many, I think citrus in general are very attractive, but some are rangier in their growth habit. Lemons, for example, kind of thorny and rangy and not the most attractive plants in their own right. But if you've never seen a calamondin or a kumquat, Calamondins are very ornamental trees. Kumquats are very attractive trees. Calamondin is calamansi. People from the Philippines know it quite well. It's hardy here. Very oval shape, very dense, huge crops of a sour orange. It's an edible, but it's sour. It's used the way we use Meyer lemon or lime. And it makes a delicious drink because you just have to sweeten it. And it's a very attractive plant. And Nagami kumquat, in my opinion, is one of the most ornamental citrus there is, even if you don't happen to eat them. Uh, if you're more patient, the Satsuma mandarins and the other mandarins are very dense and attractively foliated evergreens as well. So consider some of them in this mix. Consider some natives like Toyon. Consider some really tough, reliable evergreens like Xylosma or bottle brush and really consider a mix because I've just found that for most people, unless you really need the look of a clipped hedge, a mix of species with one of them repeating or two of them repeating, but broken up with flowers in the spring from a flowering deciduous shrub that, where you don't mind that little gap in the foliage in the winter time, uh, seasonal fruit like you would get on the citrus or on the toyon or things like that, that flush of growth you get on both the xylosma and the photinia, you can get some really cool seasonal color. And again, the vines I think are going to be problematic, but if you want some quick cover, you can use morning glory. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can use morning glory or you can use scarlet runner bean or something like that just for a quick summer cover. Um, I have a, a couple of questions. I, I know we're spending a lot of time on this garden, but it is so uh, typical. It is so. It has so many things that we can talk about. Yeah. One of the things is with that lattice work that's up there, uh, that would probably hold a uh, clematis. Sure. For a little extra 
cupboard. Now that's not going to be an, I'm not saying the evergreen clematis, but it would give you a surprise, surprise flowers. Yes, now yes indeed. Clematis, if, and all you'd need to do is hang some, um, like that black bird netting that you can't even see. And it would climb up that when it gets up to the lattice, it would go, oh, sunshine and flower and be pretty. But my question on this whole, this whole thing that we're talking about is, that lattice, if I planted a bush next to it, I know the bush would grow through the holes. If you let it, yeah. You need you need to maintain it. That would be important. Continuously working on it from both sides. And should they just take the lattice down and replace it with bushes? No, I would leave it there because it's giving privacy now. But if you did a really upright grower, Italian buckthorn is a good example of an underutilized non-native relative of our Ceanothus. It's much more tolerant than Ceanothus. It's a dark green plant. It's a relatively upright growth habit. The There's a cultivar out there that's resistant to crown rot called John Edwards, um, and it can be clipped or not. And if you put it two feet in from that lattice, it would barely poke through it. Yes, there would be a need to get in every so often to make sure that the shrub isn't tearing apart the lattice as well. But the relatively upright growth habit is the thing we would look for here. And uh, xylosma doesn't naturally have that, but it would could be easily pruned that way. In fact, you could ultimately train them up more like trees. A lot of these shrubs are extremely versatile, bottle brush being a good example. Conversation I was having with this customer, for example, he was thinking, can you get these trained like a tree so that they'd fit better in this rather narrow spot? Well, yes, indeed, you actually can get bottle brush trained as a tree. You can get oleander trained as a tree. I mean, the nursery industry does these things for you. Or you can, let's say, buy a nice five-gallon one that has a fairly open growth habit that you can look at and start training it up with an open habit down below to be up a higher as if it were a tree. And there are many shrubs that can function as small trees. Clematis is an excellent example of something that could give some seasonal color without being a real nuisance. Uh, my experience with clematis is that you better make a decision about late February where those extremely vigorous shoots of your deciduous Jack Manny type clematis are coming up, where they're going to grow this year. <laughs> and uh, I have two of them that scramble all over a sarcococa hedge. I have one that scrambles up into a Japanese maple because as they come up, they grow a foot or two a week or more at their first stage of growth. And you can guide that with just a simple little something for them to scramble up. They'll easily get up onto this lightweight lattice within the first few weeks of growth and scramble across the top and then burst with that incredible bloom of purple or burgundy or white flowers. There's hundreds of varieties of, of clematis out there. We're talking mainly about the very familiar large flowered clematis jackmanii. It's always described as wanting to have its roots in the shade and its tops in full sun. I will say the tops don't absolutely have to be in full sun, but the roots are best protected where they're sheltered, mulched, at least deep watered occasionally, and more frequent is they're happier with that if you can arrange that. So right near your vegetable garden there, clematis behind these things we've talked about would give you some seasonal color. And that's a lightweight enough vine, we're talking again about the deciduous types, that you can just let it go across this lighter weight lattice and even into your neighbor's yard, they would have no reason to object to it particularly. And then you cut the whole thing back every now and then. Uh, but you've got to learn your pruning on clematis and you don't want to plant the evergreen one in this particular situation, it would be extremely rambunctious there. But the regular deciduous, for example, Jack Manny hybrids or the summer blooming uh, Viticella hybrids, uh, either of those would work fine. They're just not 
heavy and dense enough to provide privacy on their own. It's an open foliage, so you see through them. It's, a, it's lightweight. I don't mind it climbing up on my Japanese maple because it doesn't harm the Japanese maple to be up there. It just integrates with the foliage of the maple. There's many other vines that would just engulf the Japanese maple, and I wouldn't allow that to happen. But you can let them go where they want to and then just wait till they're done blooming and trim them away. So that's really a very good suggestion to be behind some of these other screening plants. And if you don't trim them away, as Don says, um, the the how shall I put that? The stems are so small yeah. and so thin, and they're a dark, dark brown. They're almost black. Barely notice them. Um, yeah. They just disappear when yeah. when the leaves fall off, and and it's done for the year. They just disappear. A very light, they, light time. Yeah. They don't rebloom on those on the ends of that thing. It seems to be that they come up from the base again is that true don the jack manny hybrids yeah so it's important to know what you're getting if it's uh there are there's one group that i really like and we can talk more about clematis as we get closer to the bloom season the clematis montana hybrids mm -hmm. bloom on last year's growth and so you don't cut them back in the winter because if you do you lose all your flowers they bloom very early in our climate they bloom in february mid to late february and into march they smell like vanilla. They have a wonderful, sweet fragrance. And it's an all at once bloom for about two weeks, and then they're done. And that's when most people prune them back and then they grow. That's different. That's the exception, one of the exceptions in the genus. More commonly, what we're talking about are clematis jackmani hybrids or the summer blooming viticella hybrids, which grow up and bloom. They grow up to where they are and then they burst into bloom. And you can cut them back as hard as you want. You can cut them to the ground. I've told this story before, but I planted a clematis jackmani in my garden in San Diego, and then I went off to college. I thought my dog had stepped on it. I thought it was dead. I gave up on it. Go off to college. And about a year or two later, my mom, I was about three years later, my mom calls me and says, what is that purple thing that you planted that has covered the loquat tree? <laughs> she, she went out there and it was about 10 feet from the loquat tree on a fence. Uh, my dog had trampled it. I just figured that clematis was done for. I never even gave it another thought. I went away. They kept watering the yard. My mother loved going out there after I'd, I took over this garden when I was 13. I was allowed to put whatever I wanted out there. They even gave me a special allowance for this. When do you go to college? When you 17 when you go to college. So four or five years later, I move away. And uh, mom loved going out there, she said, because anytime she walked out there, some weird thing was blooming. Uh, daffodils I had planted or some rose she wasn't even aware of because they didn't go out there very much. It was more or less of a side yard. She walks out there one day in the spring and this 15 foot by 15 foot loquat tree is purple, completely covered with a clematis jack eye that had gone up and over and completely covered it and burst into bloom. So they're pretty carefree, I will say that. They can get pretty big if you let them, but they're so easy to manage that I think it would be a really good option in this situation. So quick screening, something big in a tub like a bamboo. Yes, that's, you know, be careful what you do. Many of them are well known for invading, but in a container, you can monitor that very closely. Um, and then slower growing, upright evergreens, strategically placing some citrus possibly so that they have enough room. Don't crowd them or else they'll just struggle. And work with your neighbors if you possibly can. Maybe they could plant the fajoa on their side, the xylosma on your side, which is a great combination, by the way. The color contrast of that foliage, pineapple, guava, and xylosma is really cool. And then some of these other things we talked about for seasonal color. A mixed border is better for wildlife it gives you longer bloom it gives some berries for birds to feed on if you have all one thing okay that's fine but if you can mix things together you just get all those benefits of 
biodiversity in your backyard. You draw more beneficial insects in. Uh, you you keep uh, you harbor places for birds and other wildlife. Of course, you know that includes white crowned sparrows. But you've got those covers on your vegetable garden, so you can screen them. So you've got everything going for you. One brief comment about bamboo. We actually had one of the most vigorous running bamboos around, the black bamboo, uh, Phyllostachys nigra, in a oak barrel, in a whiskey barrel at our nursery or wine barrel for 10 years. Every spring, the rhizomes would come shooting out of it, head off in whatever direction they could. One time they went right, poked their way right through bags of manure. They were feeding themselves. It was pretty amazing to watch. Four to five feet in a single period of about four to six weeks that they can go that rapidly. But once a year, we'd go over to that barrel and cut those all off. So we kept that black bamboo as a feature in our nursery until we finally sold it to someone who wanted it for their own yard. For 10 years, we managed it in that barrel. Had we not cut those runners off, the whole side of our nursery would be black bamboo, but we managed it that way. The rhizomes come out at a particular time of year. I have a customer who has a beautiful bamboo grove that he has a Zen garden in Davis, and it's one of the nicest of these styles you'll ever see. And he used a running bamboo in his yard. He surrounded it with barrier and he left. This is the important part. There's an article about this on my website. Just type in Zen to that little search box, and you'll see a full description of this guy's garden. He left about a two-foot-deep border across the back where he could walk along the back once a year and cut the runners. That's all he has to do. He just goes along and cuts the rhizomes as he sees them, and that way it hasn't spread out of the enclosed area or into the neighbor's yard. If you don't do that, within three to five years, your bamboo is going to be all over the place. So you monitor those rhizomes. If you don't want to bother with that, you go to my website and you start reading about clumping bamboos because there's plenty of them that don't run. And that's something I frequently have to explain to everybody that not all bamboo is invasive in your in your yard. There are many types that are not, but they are big plants. They need a lot of room. So there's a whole bunch of options for you there. I, by the way, I, again, I compliment your yard. I love how orderly it is. And I think you will appreciate having more sunshine. Actually, this first summer vegetable garden, you'll probably perhaps get better results than you were before, especially with those roots of the privets gone because they can really be a nuisance. So think of this as a mixed blessing and if you can possibly work with your neighbors on it, so much the better. And we'd love to hear what happens. So feel free to keep writing to us. Yeah. If you have questions or comments and want to send us your pictures, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. I'm looking at the right side of one of these pictures. You got a really cool cactus there. You see that one? Looks like the old man cactus. Looks like a big specimen too. So these are plant collectors, I can tell. You know, so Don, sometimes you talk about uh, planting those bamboo in uh, livestock, livestock troughs, yes. Livestock troughs, okay. And there are a couple of feet wide and a couple of feet deep and, you know, six, eight feet long, whatever. Um, if I were planting a plant in that, there's no holes in the bottom of that. They have a hole, would, you, they have a plug you can remove, which we definitely recommend you do unless you want a water garden. Yes, they come with, these are livestock watering troughs and they do have a drain hole on the bottom that can be taken off, which we suggest you do at the time you buy it so you don't forget. Store that somewhere in case you want to grow water lilies or something in there in some future date. We also usually drill more holes because, well, that one hole is a good starting point. We, we feel these need better drainage unless you think you're likely to want to use it as a water trough at some point in the future, but they do have a, hole, a plug that's removable. So if if the problem with planting a running bamboo in the ground is that it runs, mm -hmm. if you plant it in this and you put holes in it, mm -hmm. why won't the roots come out the bottom, out those holes and run? 
Hypothetically, it, hypothetically, it could. However, in general, bamboo runs at the surface, and this is important to know. Almost all of the root activity, the rhizome spreading activity of, of running bamboos is within the top few inches of soil. It's very easy to monitor and very easy to control. This is why I get so frustrated after many years of involvement in the American Bamboo Society. My dad published their source list, which was a list of all the species available in the United States of different vendors and so on. Many of them, of course, don't run, uh, but the ones that do, it's all manageable if you just monitor it. And they typically are on the surface or just below the surface. And it's typically in the case of the runners, the rhizomes go out in the mid to late spring. In the case of the clumpers, the shoots come up in mid to late summer, but that doesn't really matter. The, it's the runners that you're watching for, the rhizomes. And uh, well, they can go very rapidly. They don't root in right away either. When I see a yard that has been completely filled with bamboo, that took at least three to five years to get to that point. So when someone comes in and talks about how bad it is with their neighbor's bamboo, and I look at a picture, and I thought, what were you doing for the last three to four years? It came into your yard years ago, and now you're upset about it. Well, there's a whole article of the American Bamboo Society website written by my father about how to get rid of that bamboo once that happens. And it's most basically just physical removal, but really it's monitoring. I mean, there are people sent me when I was for seven 17 years, I edited the magazine of the American Bamboo Society. So we had articles about people's bamboo groves and collections. And very commonly, if they were in an area where there was enough land, they would just have a running clump, running grove of bamboo. And all they would do is in the spring, go out along the edge and monitor the perimeter and just pull up the new rhizomes and cut them off. It's not that difficult. And they are, to get back to your question, they're typically on the surface. It would be possible, but unusual for bamboo to go all the way down a water trough and out that hole in the bottom. But even there, you'd probably see it because it would be, uh, first of all, it'd probably plug the hole so the thing would start filling up with water instead of draining. And secondly, you would see it right there on the surface. So just put it where you have access to it. Uh, bamboo doesn't have to become the nuisance that people think it is with just annual monitoring. Once a year is really typically all it takes to walk around a stand of running bamboo and monitor the rhizomes. And when they go under the fence from your neighbor's yard and you're upset about it, well, the very first thing you can do about it is stop that part of it, is just go along the fence line and cut them off. If you can go to your neighbor's yard, even better, walk along the fence line, just ask if you can go along the back and see, see how the rhizomes are doing, cut them off on their side if you possibly can. But it is visible and it's typically quite shallow. So Don, I had a, do you know what I'm talking about when I say the telephone pole vine? Mm -hmm. Okay, what is it? Telephone pole vine in Davis is uh, Campsus radicans. That's the trumpet creeper. That's it. Yes. <laughs> I had that and I thought I was being so smart because I planted it in a barrel instead of in the ground because I knew this thing would take over my yard if it could. Yep. All right, so I did that. Well, it turns out that the roots of that thing went right down through the hole in the bottom of the barrel and escaped. Mm -hmm. They can, yeah. You need to monitor any, any vine, any running plant needs to be monitored. This is really important, and this is how yards get overtaken. Um, so this is one of the problems we have with vine recommendations is if they just get planted and left alone, you can really create a nuisance for a lot of people. Some things come up from root sprouts, and yes, that red trumpet creeper certainly does that. My neighbor had one 
the garden next to the one I was talking about where the loquat got covered with clematis flowers. She had that beautiful red trumpet creeper, which we loved it because the hummingbirds, we already had loads of hummingbirds in that garden and they went nuts for the trumpet creeper. But yeah, 10 feet in my garden, they started popping up from the roots. And all I could do there was dig out the individual shoot as much of the root as possible and just keep after it. She was aware it had become a nuisance as well, but then it becomes a collaborative effort to get rid of the plant. I really do recommend that you and your neighbors cooperate on your vegetation problems if possible, and especially if it's a plant that's known to be locally rambunctious, or as the British like to call them, a garden thug. Don, I have heard about, and actually eaten, collards, but mm -hmm. I don't know what they are. Are collards a kind of, of kale, of cabbage, of lettuce? What are yeah, collards? Yeah, uh, not lettuce. Cabbage, kale, and collards are all the same plant, Brassica oleracea, that's been selected over centuries for different characteristics. And collards and kale are basically pretty much the same thing. Collard, I always used to describe it as an open cabbage that doesn't make a head. It is thick-leafed, and there is a number of cultivars out there a little slower to get going than kale, a much bigger plant in the long run than kale. People harvest them by the leaf, as you do with kale, or the whole plant every so often, you know, thinning out your stand. Uh, very popular with my customers who are from the South. Obviously, collards have a long history in Southern United States. And it's a tough leafed plant, so you have to learn how to cook it. Very easy to grow, but bigger substantially bigger than kale typically. Uh, there are some newer varieties that have come on the market that are more compact, but really your old fashioned Georgia collards are, each plant needs two to three feet of space. Next year, I'll do a collards experiment <laughs> with my 15 gallon containers and see how many you can plant in a 15 gallon container. My guess is that it would crowd down to just one plant filling it up, but it is a substantial plant, but it does go for a long time. And interestingly, doesn't seem to want to flower. So I've had customers who grow collards in the fall when we sell them, midwinter when we sell them, and then they want them in the spring. And I'll say, well, this isn't really a summer vegetable here. Oh, mine went right through last summer. Uh, they will, they will do that. They actually can go through the summer. The quality changes, they get tougher, they get more fibrous. So you really have to know how to cook them in that situation. And here's the other problem. You're typically carrying over pests like harlequin bug, which love everything in this family, from one season to the next, if you carry your collards or kale or other relatives through the summer in your garden, they'll be there ready to infest your new planting in the fall. So in my opinion, for most people listening in California and also in coastal areas, especially where you have the bagrata bug showing up, clearing all of the things in that family out in, by June and not planning anymore until September, October is probably a good way to break up the cycle of those particular pests like the harlequin bug so they don't become a nuisance for you. They can really be a pain when you get them. So if you just clear everything out that's in that family as we normally would in the summer here and just compost all that, you'll typically not have that particular pest problem increasing. You really want collards in the summer, it might be a good idea to screen them somehow or keep those bugs off of them. In the And to me, the flavor and texture would be the minimus at that point, it wouldn't be that great. So probably better to just consider them a cool season vegetable. But I will say collards can take more heat, can take tougher conditions than its close cousin, the kale. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.